Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Last week, uh, we looked at Paul's life. We had an incredible time. I really enjoyed our conversation that Jay and I had digging into the text and in just talking with several of you. It sounds like God is working in your life to show you what does it mean to walk through this season. Whatever that season is for you, God is with you. I want to remind you of that. Last week, we talked about what does it mean to say, We want to pursue God's will over everything else. And we're going to pick up from that conversation and begin this morning in the book of Acts. So last week, Paul's headed down towards Jerusalem. He's told by the Spirit that trouble is awaiting him there. And his resolve was this. He says in verse uh, 24 of Acts chapter 20, you don't need to turn there. He says, "My, my goal, my call is to finish my course in the ministry that from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And that word testify is an important word. And it's a word that we're going to spend some time looking at this morning. And the word there is the word martis. Can you say martis? Martis. Okay. I'm giving you this now because as we go through our scripture reading this morning, what I want to do is highlight for you all the places this word occurs. Now, I'm only going to highlight maybe 12 of the almost 40 times in the book of Acts. But um, it's an incredibly important word because to testify or to witness is, for Paul, is to share Jesus so deeply from what he, from what Jesus has done in Paul's life, regardless of where Paul is, regardless of what he faces, even when Jews try to kill him, he is a witness. And God calls him to be a witness, not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so we are going to talk about what does it mean to testify, to witness, to be a martyr to the gospel of God's grace, even in our lives today. One of, the, one of the things I love about Paul is his life was not perfect, but what we see constantly is that he took opportunities to share this good news that Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for our sins so that when we trust in him, we can receive the gift of eternal life. Grace is something that is dear and precious. Grace is something that cannot be earned. You and I could never do enough deeds to earn a relationship with God. It's only by God's grace. Or as the hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And so Paul, the martyr, is going to give us a glimpse of what does it mean for us to be a martyr today, and how should we live then as a martyr? And so Acts chapter 1, I hope you're there. Uh, Acts chapter 1, I want to highlight where this word comes in. Normally, I would have you stand for the reading. We have a couple of longer readings today. We're not going to read all of chapter 22 and 23, but I just invite you to remain seated, but to stand in your hearts. In other words, out of respect for the word, just just know that we are listening to the very words of God this morning and that God wants to teach us through them. So here, these, the very words of God, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Flip over with me a couple chapters to Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 39. What's interesting about that last verse is you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to do what? Power to be a witness. Um, he, he says, that's Jesus speaking there. He says, you will be my witnesses. It's something describing who we are. Look with me at chapter 10, verse 39 now. Verse 39, we ourselves are are witnesses. We are martyrs of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. Yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and permitted him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us, witnesses, martyrs, appointed, appointed beforehand by God who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." He commanded us to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify, all the prophets are martyrs about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. All right, you see it many Times there. Witnesses, witnesses, testify, testify, at least according to the, the Christian standard version right here. Flip with me now over to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22, beginning in verse 12, please. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation. The word from which that comes from is the word martis. It's a, it's a derivation of sorts. So he was a good martis with all the Jews living there. He came and stood by me and he said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. In that very hour, I looked up and I saw him. And he said, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness, a martyr for him, to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling upon his name. Paul is sharing his conversion story here with the people. Verse 17, after I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned. And when the blood of your martyrs, Stephen, your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, flip with me over to Acts chapter 23. Paul has spoken before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and as, as he has done that, um, he's faced some opposition. They want to kill him again, and so the guards come in. They kind of pull him back and save his life again, preserve him, and in 23 verses 10 and 11, notice what happens to Paul. It says, when the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down. Take him away from them and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him. 
Imagine you're sleeping and the Lord stands by you, right? The Lord stood by him. The Lord said, have courage. For as you have testified, as you have been a martyr about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify, to be a martyr for me in Rome. Let's pray together. Our Father and our King, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Father, I'm thankful that it's in you that we live and we move. We have our purpose, our being, our direction for all things in you and in the revelation of your word. Lord, teach us what it means to follow you this morning. Teach us what it means to be a martyr, not for our glory, but for yours. We pray in the name of Jesus. Together we say, amen. All right, so the word martis, some of you may wonder how this might be spelled. Kids, if you're doing sermon notes, you can write the Greek, which is on your left, or you can write the English, which is on your right. And basically speaking, and I think you probably got the context from reading it in context, which is why I did it that way. But the word martis means one who testifies or witnesses, testifies, one who confirms the validity of something often with regard to legal matters. In, in other words, a martyr might be someone who's called before a court or called before a tribunal to say, is this what happened? Did that happen that way? And the witness is there to say, yes, it did. No, it didn't. They're, they're there to witness or confirm the validity of something, often with regard to legal matters. It's an important word in the Bible. In, in the Hebrew text, it says, out of the mouth of two or three, two or three witnesses, matters shall be confirmed. To, to have more than one person uh, saying this, this is what happened is an important thing. It's also the word from which we get the word martyr. So you saw it in the context of Stephen earlier in the book of Acts. Uh, Stephen is a martyr, and he's, he, we get the word martyr kind of as, as an understanding of one who witnesses, but at the cost of their life. It's one thing to give a testimony in front of a judge or in front of a jury. It's another thing to give it to the point of it costing you your life. And so that, that's the word uh, from which we get the word martyr. You might be able to say, just simply, that a, that a martyr is one who testifies to the truth that they have seen, often at personal cost. For the believer, it's someone who has had an experience with Jesus and has been someone who shares that experience with Jesus. Very, very simply, it's someone who says, here's what God has done in my life. And what we're going to look at this morning in chapters 22 and 23 is what kind of a martyr is Paul and how is God calling us to be a martyr today? And so if you would look at me, uh, not look at me, if you would look... <laughs> That's so good. If you would look with me uh, at chapter 22, we're going to, or 21, sorry, the latter part of 21 going into 22, we're going we're gonna to look at this together. Um, one of the purposes of a martyr is to be a personal testimony to others that Jesus rose from the dead. While the Jewish leaders sought to advance the lie that the disciples had stolen his body, there are hundreds of witnesses that saw Jesus after the resurrection that clearly attests to the contrary. Another purpose of a martyr is to share how God changed your life. I told you about that. Um, but I love the truth that God empowers us to be a martyr. And so in chapter 21, we're going to find out what kind of a martyr 
Paul is. Um, here's, here's a photo before we go to the text, and here's the Antonio Fortress. I mentioned this last week, I believe. This is where the guards would have likely been when they come in to save Paul's life, all right? Uh, right next to the Antonio Fortress, to the right, you'll find the temple proper. And then you'll find the holy place and the holy of holies and all, and all that to your right. Um, but the Antonio Fortress is a big Roman fortress that stands guard to make sure that there is no uh, quells or disputes or mobs that kind of kick up. Because Acts records that as Paul is sharing uh, what is going on in his life. He's confronted in chapter 21 that we looked at last week uh, by people who claim that he brought a Gentile up onto the courts where he shouldn't have. And, and the whole city is stirred up so much so that the Roman centurion or the Roman guard comes down from the Antonio Fortress to establish order again. He takes Paul into custody to quell the crowd and to assure that he doesn't escape. Ironically, he's also saving Paul's life and giving him the platform to speak to the crowd. Paul is not a man caught up in troubles unknown to God. He is a man whose steps are ordered by God to give him a platform with which to be a martyr for Christ. And so in Acts 21, we are there now. Sorry, I gave you that a little early. In Acts 21, the very last verse is where we're going to pick up. Uh, Paul describes to the, to the uh, Roman guard, who he is in verse 39 and verse 40. It says, After he had given permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. The Roman commander is giving Paul the opportunity to speak to the people who want to kill him. And he's also giving him the opportunity to do that while protecting his life from those very people. So Paul, is, uh, he addresses the crowd. Notice how he addresses them. He addresses them in Hebrew. Happens after silent. Paul, in other words, intentionally communicates in a manner in which they will hear. When he begins to speak Hebrew, they go, wait a second, he knows Hebrew. Wait a second, he's speaking eloquently to us. We know what he is saying. Paul has done this numerous times, and it's a great principle for us. He adjusts the delivery of his message to the appropriate audience. To the Greeks, he speaks Greek. To the Hebrews, he speaks Hebrew or Aramaic. There's some, there's some scholarly discussion of which one is he speaking. Is he speaking Aramaic or Hebrew here? Uh, either way, he's speaking the language that the people would have understood. Just as by way of easy application here, when we are witnessing, and by witness... I. I mean just sharing our lives and what Jesus has done with us, done with us, done to us, done in us. How do we speak to those whom we are speaking with? Do, do we speak in an elevated religious tone using big words that they may not understand, like martis, like this Greek stuff? Do, do we speak in a way that helps them understand what God has done in our life? I think it's Im important to note Paul adjusts his delivery to his audience. Because meeting someone where they are is one way we can demonstrate love for people. But then Paul goes from speaking in Hebrew to continuing to speak in Hebrew and sharing his story. He, he, he tells uniquely what Jesus has done in his life. And that's the thing about a witness, is, is it's sharing what has God done in Jeremy? What, what has God done in you? You know, sharing someone else's story can be important. 
You know, we sometimes do that as we teach. We, we, we share stories of people from times gone by who experienced God in incredible ways. But one of the most powerful witnesses you and I can have is what is God doing in your life right now? Sometimes that's hard to share because we walk through difficult times, but that's okay. God is in the midst of those. Um, so Paul shares his story, and he begins, by sharing, he begins sharing his story by establishing who he is with the audience. He establishes these Jewish credentials. Notice with me, brothers and fathers, this is verse 1, listen to my defense before you. When they heard, they became quieter. Verse 3, I'm a Jewish man born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. And then he says this, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. He begins name dropping. Hey, I was born in Tarsus, but I studied here. Where we're at, in, in, the, in the most important city in the world for Judaism, I studied here. Not only did I study here, I studied, studied under the most strict of, of customs. I studied under Gamaliel. There's a name drop for you. A big, important teacher within the Jewish people at that time. Educated, strict view of the patriarchal law. And he says this, he says, I'm zealous for God, just as I see you are today. He engages them in a way in which he knows, he, he knows that even though they're trying to kill him, they're trying to be zealous for God. But Paul uniquely knows where they're coming from because as we will see, the way he used to be zealous for God was very similar to how they are currently zealous for God. But, but he goes on sharing um, that, that what he had been zealous for way back when, turned him into someone who was a per persecutor of the church. And then he meets Jesus on a road to Damascus, and, and Jesus talks to him. And he says to Jesus, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am the Lord Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul says, what do you want me to do? He has this incredible personal encounter, and that personal encounter leads to life change. Sometimes it is easy for us to forget from where we came. We, we forget that each one of us here had a life that was separated from God, a, a life that walked in sin. That sin may look different for different people. It may be anger, it may be pride, it may be rebellion, it may be sins of a, of a physical or sexual nature, it may be sins of, of going against your parents. Each one of us here have experienced life apart from God. But Paul doesn't brush over what he once was. He says, look at what I once was. I understand where you are today. I know how you are zealous for God. I used to be the same way. But I found Jesus. And so Paul shares how Jesus met him. There was a personal encounter. Like I said, he, he, in meeting Jesus, he asked Jesus two important questions. Who are you, Lord, and what should I do? All right? These two questions is a very Jewish way of understanding the world and life. Who are you? In other words, by what authority are we talking here? Help me understand the essence and the identity of who you are. And when he comes to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did for him, he says, Lord, what must I do? In uh, tied to, is the word I want, <laughs> closely tied to believing in the gospel is, God, what do you want me to do as a result of this? How does my belief result in action? 
Believing who Jesus is necessarily leads to asking him, how then shall we live? And we often will separate these two questions. We'll say, what do I believe? Here's what I believe. And then we'll just kind of keep going on in our life. Content with the way we've lived. But when Jesus comes to us and we say, oh, this is what I believe. This is what God's word says. This is who Jesus is. It must always be followed with, Lord, what must I do? And that's a transition and that's, that's a journey of sanctification that the Lord has us on there. But it's a good check for us to say, if my personal encounter with Jesus has not led to life change, then where is my heart truly? Because personal encounters with Jesus always lead to life change. If you look at verses 21 and following, the crowd has listened up to this point. He walks them through who he is. He walks them through his testimony. They're hearing who he is. He, he tells them about Ananias. He tells them about how, how God had, had uh, called him to be a witness to all people of what he had seen and heard. He has been baptized. Uh, his sins have been washed away by calling on the name of, of the Lord. He comes back. And in verse 21 after he has shared about Stephen, whose blood was shed, and how he had been complicit in this murder. It says in verse 21, Then he said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, on first reading as a Westerner, I don't think, okay, you know, that's something worth killing them for. But if you look at verse 22, they listened to him up to this word. What word? Go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to that word. Then they raised their voices, shouting, wipe this person off the earth. It's a disgrace for him to live. That seems overkill to me. I don't know about you, but if I were to say to you, go, you know, if I were to share actually with you what the Lord told me, and, and the Lord said, go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles, and you guys were to respond with raising your voices, shouting, wipe this person off the earth, it's a disgrace for him to live, I'd be a little concerned and be like, what, what just happened here? How do we understand this? Well, the crowd listens up to this point, they're a captive audience, but Paul finally shares a truth that describes the core of their disagreement. And here's what the whole matter rests upon. Why would God send Paul to the Gentiles? The crowd takes exception to the Gentiles being grafted into the Jewish Messiah without first becoming Jewish. In other words, their identity was first and foremost as one of being a Jew. And we've seen this before. You go back to Acts 15 and other places. You, you, you see where people come and say, no, in order for you to be a follower of Jesus the Messiah, you first must this, 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 and this. Tied in there is keeping the law, circumcision, uh, rit ritual cleansing, all this kind of stuff. They, they expected them to become Jewish first before they could follow Jesus, who was a Jew, who was a Jewish Messiah. If you remember all the way back to Acts chapter 2, the church is birthed on the steps of the temple. The, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day. The early church was predominantly Jewish. For the first several years, you have Jewish followers of Jesus, which means you also have Jewish people who do not follow Jesus. So th there's a discrepancy going on here. Paul, you look at his life. He was a faithful Jew. 
All right, he, he was one who earlier in last week's um, passage, he takes four men up to the temple to complete a Nazarite vow. All right, he, he at various points in his ministry wants to get back to Jerusalem in time for the feast of Shavuot, for example, of Pentecost, so that he can celebrate it there with his people. He has not divorced his Jewishness, but the priority of his life has changed. His identity is no longer found in I'm a Jew first. His identity is found in the Messiah Jesus has died for me and I have found hope and healing in him. Now, how do I live that out as a Jew? All right, so he comes in Acts 15, for example, if, if you remember back, and he says, how do we help Gentiles come into faith? Because there was some disagreement. And there's four things that the Jewish leaders, of, uh, followers of Jesus, the, the early church leaders decided. You know, ab abstain from blood, is abstain from food sacrificed to idols. Um, circumcision was not a part of it. Um, you know, um, and so all these things. You might think about it this way. Imagine you have a circle. I've got a circle up on the screen for you right there. For the Jewish people who are opposing Paul, they want to put Jewish rit ritual customs. They want to put our heritage. They want to put the teaching, as, as they understand, of the scripture on that line as being their identity. If that, if that circle represents your identity, that's what they wanted to put there. Paul is saying... I want to put Jesus in the middle of that and then say, how does my life in the Messiah, Jesus, flow out from, from that center, who he is, to how then do I live my life? Now, before I'm too harsh on them, it is very easy for us to put a lot of things in this circle. All right? Some of us come to the church and we say, I was raised in this denomination or that denomination. I was raised Baptist. I was raised Reformed. I was raised Pentecostal. I was raised, uh, you, you kind of insert the blank. That's where I find my identity. And that's a wrong identity because your identity and my identity is in the Messiah. We, we might say, but God, I, I had church attendance. Like I was really faithful. I hit every single Sunday, every Wednesday, and even in between those things. That my identity is that I'm a faithful doer of coming to church. Or, or, or maybe it's, God, I've been really righteous. I've given acts of charity. I've been kind to my neighbor. I, I've sought to turn the other cheek. But if those things become what makes your identity, we've missed the point. Only the Messiah is the one who can determine our identity. It's interesting, you know, in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit comes upon those whose identity is in the Messiah. Those who have said, God, I am a sinner. God, I'm in need of forgiveness. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins, to rise again, so that my identity no longer found in sin, no longer found in the works of the flesh, but it's found in him. What's in your circle? If you were to put something in that circle, what would it be? 
Now, the thing about the circle is we, we, we have the circle. We come to faith in Jesus, but, but sometimes what happens is we uh, forget for a moment that Jesus is our identity and we begin working out of our flesh. We, we begin working out of, well, I'm really good at this. My identity is as a sports player. My, my identity is as a musician. My, my identity is, man, I got a really good raise last year at work or a really good bonus because I was really good. And we find our value and our worth in things of this world instead of Jesus. You get it? It's a difficult challenge because we always have to be reminded of what Jesus in his work. So Paul goes from this and his witness has hit a point where his hearers can't agree with it and they can't understand why has God sent him to the Gentiles? Because if those Gentiles don't come into the fold of Israel first, then they've missed the point. And Paul is saying, no, it's about Jesus, first and foremost. And then it's about how do they, as Gentiles, how do we as Jews live out our identity in the Messiah in the ways that are right and true and biblical for them? So for Paul, it's okay to go back and to perform a Nazarite vow. It's done for the glory of the Messiah. For Paul, it's okay to go celebrate the Feast of Pentecost because he's celebrating what God has done in sending his spirit. For Gentiles, it may not be uh, that, that we have to follow those same customs in those same ways. Doesn't mean we can't, but the differences are noted between Jew and Gentile as we talked several chapters ago. All right, so if you look with me at verses 23 and following, um, there's yelling and fighting. They want to wipe him off the face of the earth, and the commander orders him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he be examined with the scourge so that he could discover the reason that they were shouting against him like this. Here you have a Roman commander who still does not really know what's going on, in the next several chapters, we'll be figuring out what is going on here. Is this person really in trouble? So he orders him to be scourged, which is a painful yet effective way essentially to torture someone so that they would be incredibly truthful in their testimony. And so as Paul did in Philippi, as he stretched out for the lashing, he mentions, by the way, can you do this to a Roman citizen? And uh, according to Roman law, citizens were exempt from such harsh treatment unless they were convicted of a crime. And it, there's kind of like an interesting little, you know, conversation that goes in here. The commander comes. He says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Because he's like, oh, no, what's going on? Paul says, yes. The commander replied, I bought the citizenship for a large amount of money. Paul says, I was born a citizen. And so those who want to harm him uh, to get the truth, they withdrew from him. The commander, too, was alarmed because he realizes Paul was a Roman citizen and bound him. And so what happens is Paul is still safely within the confines of the Roman guards, which is actually probably one of the safer places for him to be. And the next day, the Roman commander... He releases Paul from his chains and he instructs the chief priests and the Sanhedrin to convene. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jewish people at this time. And so Paul is given an opportunity to speak in front of his accusers um, and to speak under the protection of a Roman guard. All right, th this is craziness. Th this is something only God could orchestrate. So Paul... Uh, here's another photo for you. This is the Antonia Fortress. You'll see on your left... I'm sorry. And then 
he is taken from the, the fortress of Antonia. He's taken across, or whichever route they would have taken. You now, the chamber of hewn stone in the middle is the room that scholars know that the Sanhedrin used to meet in. It is believed by many that by this time they're meeting in the royal stoa. So essentially they give him an armed escort from the fortress over to the royal stoa so that he can be uh, asked questions and he can make his defense to the chief priest in the Sanhedrin. And I, I love just to kind of summarize a lot of text here. I love how the Moody Bible Commentary summarizes the claims that Paul makes in his defense. Paul essentially says to the Sanhedrin and to the hearers there that number one, he is a faithful Jew. That he is a faithful Jew. He, he, he has not done the things that they have accused him of. For example, bringing a Gentile up to the Jewish courts of the temple. He hasn't done that. Um, he is a faithful Jew. Number two, that the circumstances surrounding his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, they were supernatural. God came to meet with him. And it's consistent with God's promises to Israel. That God has not forgotten Israel. That Israel will be brought again into the arms of God. But that there's also a plan for the Gentiles to come to faith. You can look at Romans 9, 10, 11 later if you'd like to on that. Um, and then number three, his commission to the Gentiles was legitimized by the Jewish rejection of the gospel and the divine revelation. In other words, if you recall, as we have, as we have studied Paul, Paul likes to go into a city and he likes to go to the synagogue first. He says in the book of Romans that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. Part of his love in, in sharing the gospel that he prays in, in Romans 9, 10, 11 is that his, his people, the Jewish people, might come to know Jesus as the Messiah. But as he goes into the synagogues and he's rejected, then he goes and he takes the message to the Gentiles. And what we have seen God do is God bringing Gentiles to faith by huge numbers and huge numbers and huge numbers. So those three things kind of summarize the next uh, several verses there. Um, and so there's a riot that's sparked, and Rome comes to his defense again. So if you look uh, with me at uh, verse 9 of chapter 23, the, the shouting grew. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up. They argued vehemently. We find nothing evil because he, he liked to throw a little bomb in there and say, hey, I believe in the resurrection, which is the cornerstone of of." the Christian faith, but you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees don't. He says, resurrection, and then they start fighting each other. The Roman guards come in, and they, they feared, uh, verse 10, that, um, that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, rescue him from them, and bring him into the barracks. And so you find Paul in verse 11 of chapter 23, in the barracks of the Roman Ant Antonio Fortress, you find him there, and just imagine what you might feel like if people had been trying to kill you literally for the last couple days. You know, like you speak, a mob happens. You speak, a mob happens. You speak, a mob happens. And you are having to be carried at times by Roman guards to ensure that the crowds don't get you. Imagine how you would feel. I think the Lord knew how Paul felt because in verse 11 it says the following night the Lord stood by him and he said, have courage. Have courage. 
For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. As you have been a martyr in Jerusalem, so you must also be a martyr for me in Rome. What Paul does not know yet is that there is an assassination plot <laughs> that is coming his way. But I find it just absolutely amazing that even before he finds that information out, the Lord cares enough for Paul that he comes to him and he says, take courage. Courage is often needed to do the things which matter most, especially being a martyr, being a witness. You might be able to, um, to, to understand that. If, if you've ever gone to a next door neighbor and sought to share Jesus, sometimes it takes courage to go to the next door. Sometimes when you're with your friends at school, it takes courage to say, I don't actually believe that. I actually believe that Jesus died for me. And therefore, I want to live this way. The Lord says to him, have courage. As you've been a martyr, so you must continue to be a martyr. But it's not being a martyr or a witness in his own power. Remember what Acts 1 says. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. This verse with you several times thus far this summer, I think at least twice, it bears repeating. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, uh, I came to you in weakness, fear, and in much trembling. My words, they were weak, but the Holy Spirit is working in me so that my words became a powerful demonstration of the Spirit. Here's one of the keys to being a martyr and having courage, is that when God has given you an opportunity to share your story about how he the Holy Spirit is with you to help you speak his words in his power. Now, I, I for one, am, am probably among the first to forget that truth when faced with that opportunity. But it's a truth that we need to remind ourselves of constantly. Despite the leader's best attempts at silencing Paul, God had told Paul to be a courageous martyr in Rome. Paul did not know the steps along the journey from Jerusalem to Rome, but he had determined the way in which he would live his life. He had determined that he would be a witness whenever and wherever God would give him the opportunity, so much so that he begins to look at his chains as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. So, to kind of bring this to a close, how do we live as martyrs? What, what, what does it mean to live the way of a martyr? Well, it begins with understanding the gospel. Coming to God and admitting that you are a sinner, trusting that Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for your sins. When you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and you become a martyr. It becomes your identity because it's Christ who lives in you. N numerous passages in the Bible. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ 
who lives in me. One of many that we could talk about of how our identity changes from being lost in our sins to becoming a child of God who is equipped by God to share the story of how God has saved and redeemed us, has made us into a new creation. So how do you become a martyr? Well, first you recognize that if you're a follower of Jesus, as you go through life, you are a martyr. The second question is, what kind of martyrs are you going to be? God has each one of us on a unique path. Uh, I was reading earlier this week in Proverbs 16, verse 9, came to my study, and, and, and it says this. It says, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. A, a, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. When Paul is faced with jail and all these kind of things, I believe Paul has already planned his way. He's already planned, God, I'm going to rest in your power. God, it may not always be easy, and I may need, even need to be reminded of it at times. But his heart had planned his way. His way was to live the way of Jesus. He does not know his steps. He, he doesn't know how he's going to get to Jerusalem. He doesn't know how he's going to get ship, shipwrecked in a few chapters. The Lord knows the details, but Paul's heart was, this is what I'm going to do. This is what the Lord has called me to do. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. My heart is towards the Lord and in what he wants me to do. Have you in your heart decided that your way is Jesus? Have you in your heart decided that your way is Jesus? Have, ha, have you set your heart towards him? Or have you planned your way towards something else? I want to invite our worship team to come up right now as we get ready to close. Paul's way was set in his heart. He knew what mattered most, and he embodied a trust that God would guide him according to the Father's will. He rested in the truth that the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit, would direct him and empower him for the task at hand. One of the things that came uh, to, to light yesterday in the funeral for Lori DeHaan's mom was more than one person saying, as she developed pancreatic cancer over the last, as they found out she had pancreatic cancer over the last two months, one of the attitudes of her heart did not change, and that attitude was this expressed so eloquently yesterday is that she wanted her family, her, her kids, her grandkids, cousins, nephews, nieces, and she wanted all the people that she touched to come to know Jesus. And when you're facing the end of your life, man, what an incredible posture to have. We too can have that posture today. I want to invite you to just take a moment right now to close your eyes and say, God, here's my heart. God, here is my way. Your way up until this point may be a way that is walking away from God. This could be your moment right now to say, God, uh, forgive me for walking in the other direction. Give me a heart for your way.
God, give me a heart for your truth. Lord, give me a passion to know you and to be a martyr for you this week. Our Father, all we are is yours. God, you, you hold our lives in the palm of your hands and we thank you for the opportunity that we have now, not in our own strength, but in the strength of your spirit to be a witness, to be a martyr to what God has done through Jesus in our lives. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you, God, for making us who were once far from you right with you again. And Lord, I pray in the quietness of this moment that if there's someone here who has not said, my way is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. I want my life to be all about Jesus, believing that Jesus died and rose again to pay for my sin, to make me right with God. I, I pray, Lord, that even now they would make that decision to live a life according to your way. Thank you, God, for being sufficient for us. It's for your honor and for your glory that we gather. It's for your honor and glory that we share what Christ has done in us. We bless you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.